This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hey, welcome back to Policing Matters on PoliceWin.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley, and hopefully you may be watching on our YouTube channel, the Police One YouTube channel, where we have our podcasts as well, where you can check me out and our cast of characters today. And, uh, you know, we we talk about a lot of serious topics here on Policing Matters, but we're going to lighten up the mood a little bit. Some say podcasts are like opinions. Everyone's got one. That is the saying, isn't it? Something like that. Oh, yeah. Pretty accurate, yeah. <laughs> so despite the serious and divergent and interesting guests, um, we get to lighten it up a bit with uh, our two guests, Dan and Dave Grice. They are twins and they are law enforcement detectives and uh they have a podcast of their own called small town dicks and i gotta tell you guys i am no publicist but if i were you i might make a modification there (laughs) i uh we we've had our podcast since 2017 and and i was soundly outvoted on the name uh they went for the you know the noir term for dicks and i was a sex crimes and child abuse detective thinking this doesn't mix with my world. So uh, we've, we stuck with the name and, and that's what we're known by now. So we're kind of, we're kind of hitched to the uh, wagon, so to speak. Okay. That's Dave and small town dicks follows big time crime in small town USA with all cases told by the detectives who investigated them. Each story is crafted through firsthand interviews and primary source materials, including suspect interviews, 911 calls, and uh, other audio assets that allow them to explore the case from all angles. And during its nearly six-year run, Dan and Dave have built a passionate following. Well, good. I hope they listen to this and jump on Policing Matters as well. Well, welcome, Dan Grice. Yes, thank you. It's great to be here. And Dave Grice, the second of the two small town dicks. Younger brother by six minutes. And uh, yes, I'm here. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to fumble all over this. Uh, You really need to do something about that title. Okay. (laughs) A frequent guest of ours is Kathleen Diaz. She's also known as Charlie Pitt. I don't know if you know her, but she writes a column about the rural badge writing about small agencies, small towns, um, rural sheriffs. You do too. Why is that? Why'd you pick that aspect? I think for us, when we say small town, we're thinking of our agency. We have about 65,000 people in in the town where Dan and I worked. And we're retired now, but uh, that kind of agency is only going to, or that kind of population is only going to translate to a certain number of patrol officers. So we kind of hovered in the 70-ish range of sworn police personnel. And we know that after working with bigger cities, that the number of resources and, and just folks that they can recruit and, and attract to, to bigger police departments, we don't have that advantage at the smaller departments. So we, we kind of have to make do with, with what we have around us and have to be really resourceful. So 
we really wanted to focus on kind of the the towns that that experience the same types of challenges that that our quote small town uh, faced. Right. And Dan, what's so different uh, about being out in the wild? Policing's policing, isn't it? I, you know, I think it is for the most part. We've had guests from all over the world, um, Australia, Scotland, Ireland, and, and there are a lot of similarities to, to the job, no matter where you are. I think the thing that's unique about small towns is patrol officers, detectives, you have to wear a lot of hats. And so you might be on, uh, you might be a detective who goes out on a welfare check and it turns into a SWAT call out and maybe something bad happens during that SWAT call out. So you have to go from patrol to SWAT, back to investigator collecting evidence in a crime scene and you gotta do it all. And uh, I think that's one of the things that's really unique about small, smaller agencies. For sure, I, I mean, you're generalists, right? You do a little bit of everything. And uh, Dave, can, tell me about some of the shortcuts. What do you guys do? Do you use like um, package up evidence using your sandwich bag from lunch? What do you do there? <laughs> we're, we, we, we try to stay pretty official given, uh, given we're taking people's freedom and liberty from them. So uh, we take that part pretty seriously, but yes, there are times where we, I go into the evidence room and my favorite type of evidence packaging isn't available because we don't have the money to spend on it until you know, a week later. So there are times where we ran into resource issues like that, but really is more on, on kind of, it was, it was more focused on personnel and equipment is where our shortcomings were that we don't have a dedicated SWAT team. We didn't have armored vehicles like our neighbors had. So we get hand-me-down type, type stuff from other agencies. We, we, I know that we utilize the, the federal auction program for, for military equipment that we really saw that as an opportunity for us to get equipment at, you know, a, a huge discount. So you have to be creative in those ways about spending money, respecting the budget that your taxpayers give you and, and making sure that dollar goes the longest distance it can. Yeah. Our SWAT, our SWAT truck was a, uh, was an old bread truck that we made into a SWAT van. So that's that's one of the things that we know. Absolutely. I mean, even in San Francisco, we have 850,000 population. We had a bread truck, too, for a long time. But uh, Dave, I totally uh, I hear you on the 1033 program, the the government military surplus. And, you know, with the way things are today, uh, we've got the general public shouting down. They don't want the militarization of police. So it's harder to get those things. And it's it's more impactful on on rural and small town cops ever using your own cell phone your own car something like that yeah i've i've responded off duty uh just in my in my own ford f150 pickup um and uh use my cell phone quite a bit. Uh, that's kind of odd when it, say you're in a relationship and at 2:30 in the morning you start getting phone calls uh that makes things a little there's some explaining to do, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, anything and, and everything. We're resourceful. Right. Yeah. So don't you just hand the phone over and say it's uh, Dave from Allstate? <laughs> what That's are right. you hearing? <laughs> yeah, you're welcome to get out of bed with me and come uh, deal with this scene that I'm headed to. So, Right. For real, it's happening. So 
when you are, what's your focus when you're looking to, to invite a guest on, you want to talk about something rural or small town? What's, what's the favorite topics of the listeners? I think uh, typically what, when, when Dave and I are vetting a guest, uh, finding out if, A, they're a good fit for our podcast, um, is I want to know the case that means the most to you, that you're really proud of, or the one that, that you can't forget. Uh, because I think that makes for really compelling storytelling. Uh, we've had guests in the past who really are kind of reliant on their reports. And I think it's, I think it's better when uh, a guest can just tell it from, from memory. And, you know, you get into, you've been in a crime scene, the, the smells, the, uh, the visuals of a crime scene. People, it really takes them back to them standing in a crime scene and, and what they were experiencing at the time. And I think it translates over to our listeners. For sure. Yeah. The, um, the idea that, you know, I, I teach at university of criminal justice students where they are embedded with the urban legends. And, um, you know, I, I was just reading something the other day that made me think about it um, at a death scene, like you just described, uh, Dan, you know, you walk in and the smell, right. So, uh, the idea of putting Vicks VapoRub under your nose, which opens your passages and lets you breathe in more. Now it's with this nauseating green mint smell on top of it. Just awful. Dave, have any real good stories like that? Uh, I can I can remember two right off the top of my head. Um, just typical death scene. It, it was an, it was a welfare check at first. And it was a house that I had been to many times before for welfare checks. This woman, the resident there, did not have the ability to clean her house. And, and she had cats. So I think most law enforcement officers can picture that. I think most listeners can picture that. And in this case, the woman died. And we did the welfare check, got no response. Force entry and, oh boy. Uh, that was the first time that I, I met a medical examiner, deputy medical examiner who came to the scene and handed me lavender, the essential oil stuff to put on a mask. Hmm. And I remember going, oh, that's kind of nice. It doesn't work, but it's better than the alternative. So absolutely, I have I have stories about foul, small, foul smells and and initial reads at, at crime scenes where you go, okay, this is going to be a long night. For sure. And cigars don't help either. That's another <laughs> urban legend. Uh, so your favorite, your favorite show of late, what's that about? Television show? No, your favorite podcast. Oh, podcast. You've had a guest on Dan, you, you must have somebody in mind. Uh, we, we actually just recorded the other day with a, a new guest and she was from the Northwest and she was great. She's probably one of my top five favorite guests that we've had so far. Uh, we've got, we've got a stable, you know, our old colleagues were kind of populate most of our first couple of seasons episodes. Uh, you know, my old Sergeant, my old partner, um, I'm really, uh, fond of those guys. So anytime they tell stories, you know, these are 35 year old, 35 year cops, I can listen to those stories all day long. And, uh, and I'll always enjoy having those guys as guests on our podcast. Yeah, nice. Dave, any anything come to mind? Uh, 
Dan hit the nail on the head. We had uh, a guest this past week who hit a home run. She was articulate and organized, and you could tell that when she gets a case that you don't want to be the suspect in that case because she will. She is unrelenting and really did a good job telling the story. Of course, we have a, a co-host on our on our podcast in addition to Dan's wife, Yardley Smith. We have Paul Holes, who's well known for his work with serial killers, especially um, the Golden State Killer. So he's a co-host on our podcast. Mm. And that guy has more stories than anyone I know. He is an encyclopedia of knowledge, and he recounted a story uh, this past weekend when we were recording, and it'll come out in one of our future seasons, but it was a story that he's never told us. We've known him for five years, and he's never mentioned this story, but he felt comfortable enough and safe enough with our listeners to to recount his experience with this story, and, and I, I'm really impressed by... <laughs> Given the the amount of of action that that y'all had in the Bay Area back in the eighties and nineties, I am shocked that any of you are still sane. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> We're not. <laughs> no, you know we've had Paul Holes on the show on this podcast, and he is great. And I found him. I was driving to go play like early morning pre dawn golf, and. He was being interviewed on his on another talk show. It was a news talk show, and it was he was really compelling. And um, he had a disagreement with I think the lieutenant in charge of homicide. And uh, he, you know, he wasn't the sort of go along guy. He really he's his own man. I, I I really thought that was a great show with him as well. Nice. Yeah, he's a good guy. I. Yeah, Except but storyteller too. He's he's pretty good at at kind of stringing you along and then hitting you with the hammer at the end of the story. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, you guys, especially in those sort of rural areas, I've been up to Pierce County and Washington State, and some of these places where you're out for you know dozens, if not hundreds, of miles by yourself. You have to be you know quick on your feet, and sometimes you're a solo unit. So you you guys have been doing de-escalation long before we ever heard of that term. I, I th that, that is one subject that really kind of irks me when you hear it reported in the, in the mainstream media that there's this notion among the public that's this myth, myth and misconception that police don't work on de-escalation, that we don't get trained on dealing with people in crisis. And that could not be further from the truth. I, I would I would guess that most of us receive more training than anyone other than specialized fields, both with actual classroom work, but the practical, every shift, you are practicing that no matter what, wherever you are, every citizen contact is a de-escalation of some sort. And cops are the best at it. So are, so are ER nurses and ER docs and those staff in there. They're really good at de-escalation. And it really really fires me up when people suggest that cops don't know how to deal with people in crisis. We're absolutely really good at it. The only difference between us and, and civilians is we can't walk away. We have to deal with it. We don't have a choice. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And the, that old adage of, you know, a cosmetician has like 8,000 hours or something of training and police only have, you know, a, a fraction of that. 
I guess they're looking at, you know, books of contrasting nail colors for, you know, <laughs> weeks on end. But I think the anecdotal and the that sort of e experiential based learning in the field is really what shapes police officers. Dan? I absolutely agree with you. And I, um, I had an FTO before I went to the academy. Uh, in our state, we can actually be hired and be out on the road for a little while before we go to the academy. And that was the case with me. It was the case with my brother. Um, I had an FTO before I went to the academy. He said, hey, look, I want you to, you're going to have big eyes, big ears, and no mouth this week with me. And uh, I took that to heart. Totally, was totally on board. He said, you're going to go to the academy in a couple of weeks and they're going to, they're going to teach you whatever. And then we're going to bring you back here and we're going to unlearn everything you learned at the academy. And we're going to teach you how to do it the right way. And, uh, and you're going to learn more in a week on the road than you will in the 10 weeks you're in the academy. And, and he was right on, he nailed it. Uh, I learned so much and it's, and it's from, it's from watching other officers and, and picking up what's working for them. Uh, it's from learning from your mistakes and, you know, Lord knows I made a lot of mistakes, but I learned from them. I wouldn't make the same mistake twice. So uh, I think, you know, especially for younger officers who are getting hired and, and getting into this job, learn from people who've been on the street for a long time because they're very good at what they do. And don't make the same mistake twice. If you can learn from your mistakes, I think you're in a good spot. And uh, people understand that. People understand that you're going to make mistakes. For sure. So I want to talk to you about uh, relationships, but first I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L dot com. And we're back, and I'm speaking with uh, Dave and Dan Grice, the two small-town dicks, and they are brothers and cops. And I got to ask you, I couldn't sit in a radio car with my own brother for more than uh, an hour, probably. Have you guys had to work with each other? We have had to work with each other. Dan was hired a couple of years prior to my arrival in law enforcement. I took kind of a circuitous route and went on a couple of ride-alongs with Dan, and, and he got into some fun stuff. And I said, okay. <laughs> I need a new job. So I got started late. However, in doing ride-alongs with Dan prior to my hiring and then just being on the same shift every once in a while, we never really, I always have this, he's my brother. He's also my brother, brother. And just like my sisters and brothers in law enforcement, it's just, he's another team member. I might be a little bit more sensitive if somebody goes after him, but he's a brother. So really a really great relationship at work. It was um, very collaborative. If he had a project, he'd be like, hey, you mind working on this with me? 
that kind of camaraderie that that you only get from a twin type brother is kind of amplified in the circumstances of wearing a, a gun and a and a badge and and driving around dealing with people at their worst. Um, very fortunate to have my brothers as one of my brothers in law enforcement at the same agency. Really lucky. Yeah, I'd say uh, Dave and I had kind of our own shorthand also. So Dave and I could be on a call together, contact and cover, say I'm the primary officer. Uh, and I could just look at him and and he would know what I was going to do next. Or, you know, you're looking at a guy who's getting ready to run and we just glance at each other and say, you ready? <laughs> like, here we go. We're going to be in a track meet here in a second. So uh, that was one thing that that I really enjoyed working with my brother on. Um, and, you know, any any time I, I would go to a call, I didn't have to worry about what my brother was doing. And, and sometimes when you you know, every job you have uh, a certain level of competence with uh, coworkers, and I never had to worry about that with Dave. I knew he was competent, and I knew that he knew where I was going with uh, the decisions that I was making, the questions that I was asking. So it was very advantageous, I think, for me. But surely, as brothers, there have been a few conflicts, even minor ones. I'm driving today. No, you're not. That's your report. I don't want it. You sit with that. I'm leaving. Come on. I think I think the first real conflict Dan and I had, uh, I became a detective before Dan, and I was there for a couple of years. Dan became a detective, and the first death investigation that Dan was assigned he and I happened to have gotten called in about three hours early on a, diff on a different call. And as we were leaving, our sergeant said, hey, I've got a death investigation. Should I call in two new detectives or you guys are here? Do you just want to handle it? And I was like, Dan, sounds like your first death investigation. He's like, oh, no, no, no. This is the part where you kind of walk me through the detective side of a death investigation. I know how to do the patrol side, but you work me through it. And I remember going like, no, this is, this is yours. This is not mine. It, it's little brotherly love type, type things like that, or being out on a scene, doing the paper, rock, scissors, doing paper, rock, scissors, scissors on who has to do the evidence sheet, that kind of stuff. That's the brotherly kind of rivalry that we had in law enforcement. Yeah. They like to play the seniority card when they get back to detectives, even though you don't get a pay raise in our department if you become a detective. So I, I, I wouldn't say it's a promotion, um, but they, they like to uh, they like to play that seniority card on the young guys, even though I wasn't really young when I became a detective. So, <laughs> yeah, you're six years, six minutes older, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> best six minutes of my life. <laughs> you trump that seniority card down. <laughs> hey, what's the briefing room about? I was looking at your website. You guys are talking about the briefing room. It's it's really just small town dicks is very case specific. So we talk about a case and an investigator's experience going through that investigation. The briefing room was kind of broken off with side conversations from these recording sessions with different investigators where we kind of go off on a rabbit trail. Mm. And that's kind of what spawned the briefing room. The briefing room really for us is a way for us to discuss law enforcement topics that aren't case specific. So bail reform, 
that kind of topic or mm. school shootings. We talk about these things because what Dan and I were noticing was there was a lot of misconceptions, a lot of bad information out there and some expectations that maybe people had that, that think that we're Hollywood and we can shoot the gun out of somebody's hand at 50 yards. We're trying to combat that going, no, 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 this is realistic. You don't shoot someone in the leg to disarm them. Like those bullets have, have price tags on them if, if they miss. All of these things that you just see over and over and, and cops, we all know it. We all roll our eyes and like, oh, they butchered that. We're trying to overcome that because right now police work is in a crisis about the way we're perceived, the way people posture us and how we're supposed to do the job. Folks who posture us in these situations that don't know what, what that actually entails. They don't know what the consequence of some of these decisions that politicians are making and how they translate to safety on the streets for citizens and cops. Yeah, that's great. I wish there was a vehicle to get that to some of our elected leaders. Um, you know, there's a president of a free world country. I won't mention his name, but he thinks we should be shooting people in the arms and legs. Right. And and how do we combat that kind of ignorance? I I don't know how to combat. I Dan and I, we talk about it all the time. Our our rules in in law are all about reasonable people. And that term is, uh, is used so much throughout case law and everything that it's up to a reasonable person. And, and the way we look at it right now, things don't seem very reasonable to us. So they don't make sense. Yeah. And, and Dan, when you're talking to an audience, uh, not all listeners are in law enforcement. Sometimes you have to sort of demystify or break the code for people who, who don't really know about the inside baseball. We see horrible legislation that cops can spot in a minute and know what the consequences will be. How do you get that message out to your listeners? I, you know, I, we've, we've talked about it uh, in maybe short little tangents in, in certain episodes, you know, in the, in the state that Dave and I worked in, uh, a couple of years ago, they had legislation where they decriminalized uh, very hard drugs, heroin, meth, I mean, all the hard stuff, and they decriminalized it. And I think anybody who's worked in law enforcement who has experience in dealing with people on the streets who are battling addiction, who are uh, drug affected, we knew what that law was going to do to them. It was not going to be good for them. And uh, so that that's what's difficult for us in law enforcement to see legislation come out that I feel is uh, is misguided. Um, so if in the briefing room, if we can talk about these topics and and give them some exposure, because we typically get over a hundred thousand listens to our briefing room episodes, I think that's a good start. We're reaching some people, and maybe they'll talk to some people, and and it and it grows organically. But uh, we, we have got to get serious about drugs in this country. And, uh, and I just haven't really seen it happen. Um, I don't think the answer is what we did in the 80s with the war on drugs, but there's gotta be a happy medium between what was going on in the 80s, locking people up for life for dealing marijuana um, and what we're dealing with now where we're not even, there are no consequences. Um, there's, there's, middle ground there and we have to find it. 
Yeah, and, and this could be a briefing room episode because you touched the nerve with me. In California, we decriminalized all drugs across the board for personal possession, misdemeanor now, but you can see the consequences and the war on drugs narrative doesn't really sit well with me because we've turned the car keys of drugs over to public health 15 years ago in California. And we've just seen overdose rates, overdose death rates climb from two, 300 to 700 in San Francisco. And as a nation, we're over 100,000 annually now. So there's got to be some law enforcement component. We, the idea that we just say it's it's a health issue, not a crime issue. I think that was one of our biggest mistakes. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. I, For us, where police work is is not always consequence driven, we're trying to do the greater good. And, and most cops are trying to find a non-custodial way to resolve a situation because we know how much paperwork that involves on the back end. But a lot of us also realize when you arrest somebody, it, it could be a really big deal. Maybe they lost their father the day before and they're dealing with stuff. So there really is an impact, but to have no consequences whatsoever is, I mean, I used to use the, the analogy of what do you do when your kid goes into the kitchen and reaches into the cookie jar and, and starts eating cookies and you tell them no, no more. And they do it anyway. And then you tell them no, and they do it again. They're not learning anything. And, and you as a parent are regressing and now you have a different power dynamic in that house. And I was asked years ago, what do you think is going on? And this is before the, the current slate of issues that we're dealing with in the last few years. But years ago, after I was just a baby cop, what do you notice? What's the difference? And I was like, we have a nation that doesn't teach their kids accountability and respect. And that's going to translate to a lot of crime here in about 10 or 15 years. And here we are. Yeah, well, you called that. Who's winning the next Super Bowl, Dave? <laughs> I I hope it's the Chargers. I like Justin Herbert. I'm an Oregon Duck fan. Well, sorry, it's going to be the 49ers. <laughs> hey, you, <laughs> you, you guys are headed into your 12th year. That's a lot of cough drops of your podcast. Are you running out of stories yet? Have you... <laughs> Let me ask you that one first. Then I have another one for you. Are you running out of stories, Dan? I, you know, I certainly have fewer stories that I can tell now because I've I've told a lot on the podcast. But uh, there are a few cases that I'm waiting for some resolution to that I think are going to be great stories, and uh, we'll see how that we'll see how that all irons itself out. Okay, Dave, how about you? You plagiarizing, uh, plagiarizing stories to keep the podcast interesting. <laughs> We're fortunate uh, as our as our listener base grows, we kind of swallow up law enforcement officers here and there because their significant others pull them in and say, no, no, you'll really like this podcast. And I'm sure they're like me where they roll their eyes and they're like, they're not going to know what they're talking about, which the jury's still out with with Dan and I. However, I'd like to think we kind of offer this middle of the road. This is what you can expect. This is what, what we consider to be out-of-bounds law enforcement. However, given the caliber of the guests that we keep bringing in, we, I'm confident that we'll have plenty of stories. It really is just making sure that we're bringing on the appropriate guests 
who tell the story in a way that's reverent to victims. That's our biggest charter is while we're telling these stories, we anonymize them. So we're not throwing out specific names and, and put throwing people under the bus. We anonymize it to the point that we're changing some details to kind of obscure who the real involved parties are. We want to tell those stories realistically with reverence and respectfully, but also give the listener a little experience on what this case meant to this investigator, that we do take them home, that we have plenty of sleepless nights, that these are a big deal to us as well. And that's kind of our way I've thought about it after, after investigating child abuse and sex crimes is that this podcast is kind of a, a therapy session for me and, it, and other detectives had said, said the same thing, that they feel better after they get it off their chest, that they were able to get their story out there. This is what it did to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I will say this, uh, we are always looking for new guests too. So if, if you are interested in, in coming on the podcast, please reach out to us through our website, uh, smalltowndicks.com. It's much different than Small Dick Town. That is a different website. You do not want to go to that website. <laughs> yeah. Like, That's like where the United fans live. Oh, no. Come on now. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Like the old, the, the, old, um, the White House uh, website was a bad one, too. <laughs> so uh, have you um, come across some stories? I mean, I, I got to tell you, between my editor and me, in our, our email, policing matters at police one.com. Um, we get a lot of people saying, Hey, I'd really love to be on your show. And then uh, I try to do a little bit of research and background and then start talking to them and then find out, wow, we got, you know, how do I get out of this now? Have you come across some guests or some shows or ideas that you've recorded and thought, Oh crap, I can't really put this out. And why? Yeah, I mean, we have. Uh, and and sometimes, you know, you, you try to get as much as you can in the vetting process. But, uh, you know, there there have been times where you actually get to the recording process and, and somebody says something that maybe has some racial overtones that don't agree with us. Um, that that, you know, that those are things that I that I don't have a whole lot of uh, tolerance for. Um, so, you know, it's, it's happened in the past. I would say 99.9% of the guests that we've had have been a plus people and, uh, we're, we're lucky to have them, but you know, every now and then you're going to, you're going to run into something that maybe you don't agree with. And that that's maybe not the right tone for our show. Mm-hmm. And, and I would echo that, that a big red flag to me is given where we are in the world today with body cams. If, if you're hesitant to wear a body cam in this culture that I start looking at you in a different, with a different lens, I go, why would you not want proof of what you've done? Right. That's a big red flag for me. And anybody who mentions that on our, during our vetting process, we're like, not a factor, not going to be on the, on the show. So we, we know what our guests we know what our guests expect and we know what's right to put out there. Um, all of us have our own opinions, but I think the common thread among our guests is they want to do the right thing and they want to get the bad guy. And they don't, they want to just get any bad guy. They want to get the suspect. It's not, 
a witch hunt. It's let's get the evidence that gets us to the suspect and gets them off the street. Do it the right way. Those are our guests. For sure. And, and I, I do believe that the guests are the heart of the show, right? That's the podcast that you get somebody knowledgeable or entertaining says something, you know, that's uh, thought provoking. That's the show. Absolutely. So, and in that vein, you guys have been awesome. You guys are great. Um, and how can our listeners find your show? Two small town dicks. <laughs> Uh, you can find us uh, anywhere you listen to uh, podcasts, Google Play, Apple, all those. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can find Small Town Dicks is a true crime case specific podcast. Or you can find The Briefing Room, which is broader law enforcement topics. And that's in its infancy. We just finished our first season with uh, The Briefing Room. Right. I'd, I'd add that you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, and we have we have great fan interaction on uh, Instagram and, and Facebook mostly. Um, we do tweet, but we don't we don't get a lot of traffic on our our Twitter account. But Instagram and Facebook are pretty lively, and we have we have great fans. Oh, great! Glad to hear it. All right. Well, thanks for taking time with us today. We'll put the links to your show in our show notes for our listeners to to check you out. Give a listen. And hey, thanks so much for spending time today, guys. Absolutely. Thanks for the time and thanks for your service, sir. Yes, it was a pleasure. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my wife is also a co-host on our podcast. Her name is Yardley Smith. She's an actress. Uh, she's the love of my life, but she's also the voice of Lisa Simpson on The Simpsons. So um, she kind of asks all the, all the questions that us knuckle-dragging cops kind of take for granted. Um, and she's like our, she's our, uh, tear machine. She gets people to cry. That's what her job is. <laughs> Does she step on their toes or how's that work? She, she has a way about her. She asks some questions that, uh, that just open the floodgates. Yeah. Yeah. She, she can works. chisel away at some pretty, uh, impenetrable, uh, sergeants and lieutenants who are, are very poised and stoic she's gotten to a lot of them wow just asking questions about where does this sit with you how do you deal with this ta-da open pandora's box yeah for sure no we've done a lot of shows recently on uh, officer wellness and uh, peer resources and yeah some and the families of cops i mean that are often forgotten and so it's great that you guys have that kind of support good for you dan yeah it's she's She's outstanding. Awesome. Does Thank she you. do it in, in voice? Uh, her, you know, her voice is, isn't much different than her v Lisa Simpson voice, but uh, yeah, she, she does it in her normal voice. Yeah. Great. Great. There's, there's not a huge divide there. All right. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll uh, stick with it. We expect another 12 years out of you. <laughs> same as you mr dudley <laughs> I'm, I'm in year five i have plenty of stories and if i if i run out i'll just make them up well we'd love to have you as a guest put it out all, there all right hey i have it on, i have a recording of you saying that so awesome i'm in all right guys take good care and to our listeners let me know what you think uh dave and dan grice small town dicks they talk about uh, small town policing, 
detectives, crime-solving victims. They run the gamut, and it is you know a little lighter than some of the shows you've been hearing here about you know tragedy and real crime victims. And uh, check it out; it'll be good for you. All right, take good care, and we will chat up with you next time. Stay safe, and talk to you later. <laughs>